Again, my name is Pastor Joe. I'm glad you're here at Epiphany Church of Gloucester City. We've been in a series in the Gospel of Mark, and we've definitely hit what could be called a rough patch in the Gospel of Mark. Last week, I preached a text which comes right before this, where Jesus utters those unforgettable words, where their worm will not die, about everlasting hell. That's a, that's a tough word to preach. And then tonight you saw and heard that we we're going to be talking about marriage and divorce, sexuality, wealth, all kinds of stuff. You know, it, we call these hard words of Jesus, and as I've told you before, they're, they're called the hard words of Jesus, not because they're hard in the sense that nobody knows what he even meant. They're hard because they're very clear what he means, and yet we just don't want to hear it. We would have liked it for him to be more cryptic and a little more vague so we don't have to deal with him directly. Because nobody wants to say, you know, it's one thing to say that church is whack. You know what I mean? It's one thing to say that church is whack. You know, um, they're all about the institution and their history is messed up and they've abused people. But, but less people, not everybody, but less people are willing to go down the road of, you know, Jesus is whack. <laughs> and his teaching is unhelpful and he was an unhelpful person in history. <laughs> You know, we, we, we would like words, and we go to intentionally words that are vague, that are cryptic, that, that don't offend us in any way. I, I, was, I, I came across this uh, saying from a very popular um, teacher of wellness and health, and she said, you know, when we raise our energy vibration, we attract support from the universe. What does that mean? I don't know. <laughs> but that's kind of the point. Because <laughs> she's just like, all right, I guess like if we're positive, it's good to be positive, right? Like, don't be negative. I, I guess that's what she's saying. You know, here, here's something. Um, here's something that uh, I'll read to you. It's, it's, it's from the horoscope section of the newspaper. For me today, feelings are easily expressed, although more on a subtle than verbal level. New business opportunities may open up through contact with new and interesting people, may being the important word there. Social events and group activities should therefore contribute more to your personal growth and emotional well-being than they usually do. Make the most of them. So yes, if you are an Aries, this is the first time that you've ever heard a horoscope read, your horoscope read in church, and the last time you will ever hear your horoscope read to prove a point that, that we want to just hear things which could be true of anybody in any situation and don't confront us in any way or challenge us in any way. And if they do challenge us, it's that vague challenge where there's no way to like see on the other side of it. 
if you did it or not. See, Jesus gives us these blunt, clear, but hard words. One of, the, one of the things that he taught was love your enemies. And back in the day, especially, the idea of loving your enemies seemed like self-suicide. It seemed like the most radical thing that anybody could ever say and stupid and self-destructive because it's like, if we love our enemies, then they will take advantage of us. The only way that the world makes sense is that I exercise my power if I have an opportunity to get even, I get even, and I just throw my weight around and throw my power around, and that's the only thing that makes sense. And of course, there's lots of people who think that to this day. But when Jesus is saying this, he's deep in, he's digging a little deeper than we do because nowadays that, that statement is not nearly as controversial as it once was. And we, 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 root, we root this sense of, listen, we shouldn't make people who are different than us or on the other side of things non-human. We've seen through wars, we've seen what that does, we've seen what Hitler did to the Jews, we've seen, you know, what's happening over here in America with Native Americans and African Americans, we've seen over and over and over that, that we should wait and slow down, and it shouldn't just be us versus them, but Jesus is rooting this in so much of a deeper thing than, than just the, the, the idea of the dignity of all people, which is true and which is a part of it, but he roots it even deeper than that. He's able to say, love your enemies because he is teaching that God is the one who's going to bring justice. So not just love your enemies because you're the same as them, and ignore the things they've done to you, but love your enemies because it is not your job to deal out justice. Not that there is no justice. Not that things that happen to you don't deserve a response. The abuse, the discrimination, the opportunities that were shut down. Right? So we can, we're free because we are looking just beyond just today. You know, but today, today we look at a passage that is specifically difficult for us. This week, we're talking about marriage and divorce, something that, that we have never sought to avoid. We had a whole entire theology on tap discussion on sexuality. It was one of our most well-attended discussions. You know, we've, we brought it up in, in sermons and this kind of thing. But today, we're going to look at it um, a little more directly. It's also in our membership manual. We have, this is really important because, um, you know, we have people that on a regular basis will message us, what do your church believe about these things? You know, what do they believe about sexuality and all this stuff? Um, and it's disingenuous to say, um, I just come, I just like to talk about Jesus and not think about these things. <laughs> you know, we, we, gotta, we gotta be honest, you know, we gotta be, tell the truth. That's what it means to be a Christian, right? So we're going to look at this passage through the three things we see in it through these three stories. 
And one of the things we see, we see the, the, the individual, we see the ethic, and we see the cost. So the first thing we see is the individual. See, what happens is that the machine becomes bigger than the man, right? Like Jesus could see past all of um, how institutions, how uh, certain ways, certain cultural norms become bigger than individual people. And, and we see that shining through here in, in a big way. Jesus was so good at this, by the way. He could look at the woman at the well in John 4, and he could see her, who she really was. He could see that she could be this missionary, like the first missionary to the Sumerians, right? And then, and then Jesus can see this rich man which by all appearances is showing humility. He's kneeling before Jesus. He asks a question like, like, like a preacher's dream that somebody would come up and, and kneel down and say, what, 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 what can I do to be saved? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, just teach me. <laughs> whatever, whatever it is. Tell me, tell me what to do. And, and, and he's showing humility and he's lived a clean life. And yet Jesus' approach to the woman at the well and to, Jesus, to this, this rich man are completely different because Jesus sees the individual and he looks at the heart. You know, we struggle with this. We struggle with this. I, I think of on the unfortunate example of all, all the, uh, the scandals in the church, particularly, particularly you know, in, in, in the Roman Catholic Church. It was last year where they had published in this town and all over in South Jersey, I don't know if it was the whole state, every place that every priest had been who was flagged for abuse. And it, it was almost like there was almost no time there wasn't a priest in every county. <laughs> And what happens is, what happens is the institution is placed over the individual. Particularly in that case where the institution, faith in the institution is closely related to faith in God himself. And so if something's going to tarnish the institution... The individual has to take one for the team. Because people have to believe in the church. <laughs> Let me bring it more close to home. You know, even though I grew up, you know, like some people here, I grew up Irish Catholic and all that. Um, for a long time, I've been a Christian and uh, I have met so many people in campus ministry that have had this experience where, you know, they get poured into and there's a staff member who's like a mother to them, a father to them, and they're, they're in college and they're, or they're in high school and they're just getting poured into in their juniors and their sophomores and then they get to, to be seniors and then all of a sudden they're completely ignored because the staff have to sustain the thing, the institution, I got to focus on the freshmen. 
And I have seen people just, just crushed. They're like, wait, I, I thought this person played like a father role in my life, like a mother role in my life, met with me several hours a week and poured into me. But now that I'm on my way out, he dropped me like a bad haircut, <laughs> right? Like just dropped me. I remember we had this woman over our house when we were living in Philly, and she was in this really hard place doing amazing work in Kensington with these, these kids and loving it. And, and she was like gearing up to move into this house that was kind of like this, this group of women that were like just doing amazing things for, for Jesus, kind of like, you know, like a commune, you know what I mean? And they were right in the thick of violence and poverty and all this stuff. And um, I remember having her over dinner and asking her, you know, how have things been with you and Jesus? Like, have you been praying? And nobody had asked her that in a really long time. And tears started pouring down her face. And, and she put all her identity in the ministry. She poured all her identity in the ministry and she had lost her relationship with Jesus. And I told her, listen, don't move in. Like God wants you to love him. <laughs> he's a good master. He's, he's not the kind of boss that's just going to suck every single ounce out of you and destroy you. <laughs> like you're not chasing him. You're, you're chasing some identity. You're chasing something else. But it's not Jesus. When we use people to build the church, we're doing it backwards. We're supposed to use the church to build people. You know, Jesus sees the person, the individual. He sees the woman in this situation where the Pharisees come and they ask him about this whole idea of divorce and Moses gave him this exception where the, you know, he could write a certificate of divorce and what had happened is this had kind of, you know, become more and more and more tolerated. By the time Jesus was around, there were rabbis who were writing things like, you know what, if your wife burns your dinner and she displeases you in any way, you can just divorce her. Now, a lot of us here have experienced being in a relationship and then just being dropped. But the difference 2,000 years ago in Jesus' time is that if a woman were married and then was just dropped because the guy had eyes for something else and wanted to go in a different direction, that woman had no way of making money. And now she has the stain of being divorced and crawls back to her extended family and has no opportunity, education, or way to live. And that's the context in which Jesus is talking. And Jesus sees through their little trick 
question because they are always trying to trip Jesus up with these questions because they, they want the crowd to get all wild up because there were some people who were like, no, you can never divorce. There were other people who were like, you can divorce for any reason. And Jesus sees through all of that. He sees the need. He sees the child that they're trying to block from coming to him. He sees the child, which, you know, especially back then, like you didn't have power. You, 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 you know, my, my mom's old school, and um, I remember when, like, every pregnancy we had, and we had, like, really rough pregnancies, but she would always be like, like, I don't understand. Like, I'm old now, and, I, like, I don't get gender reveal parties at all. <laughs> like, they really annoy me. Like, the big, like, gender reveal party. Um, but, like, my mom's even more old school now. She's like, she'd have that saying, like, you don't count your chickens before the eggs hatch, right? Because back in the day, not even that long ago, you know, a lot of pregnancies don't end up in deliveries, in healthy children. And even further back, not a lot of children make it to be adults, <laughs> But Jesus sees the value of the powerless. He sees the value of those that no one else sees. And he calls them in. He makes them a model of the faith. You know, Jesus sees the rich man, and he sees this rich man not only as a rich man. See, Jesus isn't prejudiced against rich men. <laughs> But Jesus sees him for who he really is, which is a man that needs God just as much as the poor man. And Jesus needed this man, because it says in the text, even as he's about to say this really, really hard thing, sell everything, it says then his heart was full of love. Jesus is just blowing up with love for this rich man. And he needed the rich man to see himself the way Jesus saw him. Not coming to Jesus with his resume of all the good things that he had done. And how he had followed the law since he was a kid. But coming to just follow Jesus. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, Therefore, we do not regard anyone according to the flesh. We don't look at anyone according to just their social status and how they seem on the outside and the behaviors they have only. But we see people from a spiritual point of view. We see them in relationship to their need for salvation and their need for Jesus. And we move towards them in love. So we, Jesus sees the individual. He also he sees, we also see in this, this passage, this, this ethic that's scriptural. The whole law is summed up in, what is it? All right, so yeah, so, so listen, my kids, my older kids, and we'll teach our younger kids as they come up, they know this. There's like 613 laws in the Old Testament, if you didn't know that, that's a lot of laws, <laughs> you know? 
I mean, some of you may have like a mom or a dad or a grandma who put some rules up, or you maybe went to class where there are some class rules on the blackboard on the first day of school. When the Hebrews came before their God, their classroom, the blackboard had 613 <laughs> rules. <laughs> and then out of these 613 rules, 10 of them sum up the spirit of God's will for his people which we call the Ten Commandments. And then there's this expression that we'll preach in a few weeks where, where we see it in the Old Testament and then repeated in the New Testament of this idea of the greatest commandment, which sums up the Ten into love God and love others. That's the idea. And then you can even boil that down to just one word, what does God want from us? He wants love. God wants, he wants love. That's the whole point. Love draws us in closer to others and to God where sin isolates and separates. The rich man story, we see that, that you know, there wasn't love. The, the rich man loved the wrong thing. He loved his wealth. He was grieved and he was pushed away from God. What is it that you love that pushes you away from God? Do you know that it's possible to be like that rich man, to, ha- to love everything that is produced by living a right and straight and good life without truly loving God? Do you hear what I'm saying? You can love all the, 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 the results of living the good life, the life which God spells out for you in the scriptures, but not actually love God. See, the point of sexual purity is love. Like every other law, like don't steal from your neighbor. Not because, not because Jesus and God is like a killjoy, like, you know what I mean? That's somehow how we think. We're like, I want things more than other people. I should just take them because they're not using them. They don't need them. No, God says don't steal because stealing is not love. And when you know that you're loved by God, he's going to take care of you. You don't have to commit fraud. You don't have to lie on your taxes. You don't have to do all this shady stuff to get by. But you know that you're loved and you can live right and clean. So here's where we get the biblical teaching, which is consistent and clear and uncompromising throughout the scriptures. We see that sex is shared and enjoyed in the covenant of marriage, which is meant to be a lifelong commitment between a man and a woman. And the the biblical reason for that comes right out of this passage. It's one of the main passages. You know, I, 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 and I, I, this is a hard passage to preach, all right, in this moment. But I, I went out and I, I, I wrestled with this stuff and tried to understand different sides. And I was, I was engaging with somebody, reading and listening to somebody. Like, listen, Jesus here, their argument was, Jesus here is just celebrating the covenant of marriage that's, you know, heterosexual and... Um, and it, it, it's like carrots and peas that go together. But he's silent about peas and peas or carrots and carrots. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. 
Jesus doesn't just exemplify, like he doesn't just celebrate this relationship and then is silent. He roots this relationship in creation itself. Male and female together reflecting the image of God. And if there were no other statement about any of these things, it would be enough. But there are. There are many, many statements. And there's, this, there's a statement um, throughout. And actually, the idea of adultery here is this idea of pornea, which we get you know, the word pornography from. And it's this catch-all phrase, which is repeated many, many times in the Bible for fornication, whatever. And it's basically this idea of sex outside of the relationship of marriage. You know, today I went to a church that had a Wawa card, gift card, under the seat of every person. And if they were a visitor, they could pick it up and it would gift to them. Now, if I had that here, and I definitely don't, so welcome to Gloucester City. That's never going to happen. But, like, if you had the Wawa card, you know what I mean? And I said, listen, everybody gets a Wawa card here. You know, I wouldn't have to say specifically, Owen gets a Wawa card. <laughs> you know, Ethan gets a Wawa card. Because I said everyone gets a Wawa card. And, and, and that's what this idea of fornication is. Sometimes the Bible spells it out and talks specifically about these different ways and orgies and and, 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 you know, premarital sex and all these different ways. But here, he just talks about it in general. So this is the general idea of fornication. And then there's the statements in the Bible on homosexuality. There are six statements on homosexuality itself. Out of those six, one of them could be debatably just about an abusive relationship because back in the day... Back in the day, a lot of like soldiers, like men would have like young boys that were just kind of like they could do anything to them, you know, and they were supposed to dress them and they would train them up to be soldiers, but they also could abuse them sexually. And um, so we could take one of them out um, and just say that, you know, the scriptures was condemning that practice. But um, the ethic of sexuality has always been radical for us as Christ followers. And we need to recognize that every single one of us is a sexual sinner. Ah, remember that whole thing? If you look at somebody, like you don't have to be wiling out, breaking up relationships. You know what I'm saying? You don't have to be doing all that. Like every one of us in some way, I remember, like my dad, you know, my dad was old school, that blue collar Irish background where he saw me coming up and uh, I was as, you know, amazing and awesome as I am today coming up, just great personality, you know what I mean? And I was so cool and, uh, um, he just wanted to make sure, you know, that when I was a teenager, 
that I, I would get with a woman. So he wanted me to go um, on a cruise, you know, and, and find a prostitute, which for some of you, you like, never heard anything like that in your life. And other people are like, I know what he's talking about. <laughs> you know, there's that whole old school, you know, we would like our women to be kind of tame or we don't want to know about what they did, but the men, like, have your fun, <laughs> right, and, to, and then settle down with somebody nice. We have all kinds of crazy, not from Jesus, not from scripture ideas of sexuality. It was so much to the point that way back in the 30s and 40s, C.S. Lewis was looking at this and thinking about becoming a Christian. And what he said was, listen, he's like, he's like either my sexual instincts are completely just demented and out of control and broken, or Christianity is not true. Because there's no way that Christianity can be true when I have these strong feelings that I want to do X, Y, and Z, and I want to float like my boat with the rest of the culture and just have my fun. You know, throughout history, Tim Keller talks about Christians are to be stingy with their bodies and generous with their time and their pockets, which is like upside down. Upside down land. Because a lot of times, you know what I mean? Like in the world, it's like, yo, be generous, don't be stingy. You know what I mean? Like, you're beautiful, whatever. And like, nobody expects you to share what you have. Nobody expects you to share your time. And Jesus here continues on. He's actually talking right about divorce. And Jesus extends sexual sin just beyond any marriage at any time. You know, I was in Africa and I met people who had multiple wives, polygamy, right? And, and, and I had an African guy challenge me. He said, he said, you know what, we practice polygamy, but you guys, you guys practice serial polygamy. <laughs> so you, you might not have, you know, four or five wives at the same time, but you have one, you divorce, and then you get another one. You divorce that one, then you get another one. <laughs> and this is what Jesus is talking about. He's saying, look, you promised to be with somebody, and now you, you, you go on, and now you start it in a relationship with somebody else. You're, this is not what God wanted. This is not what he planned. You know, sex is like, it, it's like a nuclear fission, you know. You, you can power entire counties multiple counties from a plant. There's one in Limerick, PA, you know, and it powers like the whole entire region. But the same technology of splitting the atom is so powerful that when things go wrong, it can melt a city. And, and that's, the, that's the thing with sex. It's like, it's like it is a beautiful gift from God. And when we align up with what he wants for us, it is a blessing in our life. It fuels our life. It strengthens our marriage. And it's, it's just a beautiful thing. But then when we mishandle it, it brings a whole lot of carnage in our life. And I'm speaking in a room where... I mean, yeah, we know about this. We know about baby mama drama. We know about all the wreckage in our life from the decisions we made. Amen? 
you know, Jesus gives this example. He gives this exception of, of adultery when he talks about marriage. He says, you know, you, you, you're not free to just leave. And, and then he gives an exception, which is interesting. And then, you know, when you look at the whole Bible teaching and you look at the, what the, what the you know, confessions teach about this, there is a consistent teaching that there are these exceptions to marriage where there is such a violation of that covenant of marriage that those promises that were made are taken away. And Jesus talks about the one here. He talks about adultery. And then elsewhere in the scriptures, we can see abuse and we can see abandonment. And what is, what, why are there these three exceptions? This is really important because a relationship, a covenant relationship of marriage, we learn a little bit about what it is by seeing what destroys it. And what destroys the marriage is when people who are supposed to cherish each other use each other. You know, when we see people who aren't partners in life, but someone becomes a prisoner in life, where they have no will anymore, where their bodies are at risk from either physical abuse or disease. And at this point, while divorce is something that God hates, you know what God hates even more? You dying. God hates you dying more than he hates divorce. And so... It's a place that we do not tread lightly or ever encourage, but it's something that we dare not forbid when our Lord himself didn't forbid it. And so what do we do? What do we do with all these things? We, 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 we learn that for disciples, there's this crazy sexual ethic that, that seems impossible for us to... First of all, I want you to hear this, is that the Bible talks more about greed. It talks more about hell. It talks more about a whole lot of things than it talks about sex. The Bible is not overly concerned in the way we think of it about sex, but what's happened is, is that we have gotten to a place in the culture where we believe it's impossible to live a fulfilled life unless you're sexually fulfilled which would be a foreign idea for much of history. You know, what we do with those in our life, what we do for ourselves, we ourselves struggle in different ways and have different attractions that we, we didn't like, what we didn't ask for, we, we didn't ask for, um, or, you know, we're in a spot where we are divorced, or we're in a spot where we're the third or fourth person, when we're in a spot where we find ourselves, where we read these words, and they're hard, not because they're theoretically, theoretically hard for somebody else, but they're hard for us, right? What, what do we do? Well, this is what we do. We, we provide absolute acceptance and lean into absolute discipleship as followers of Christ.
You're, 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 you're the person you, you love, your, your brother, your sister who was divorced, the same one with the other one. Your brother who's with another man. That's your family. And what you do is you love them. Stand with them. Defend their rights. We say this all the time. Discipleship means this. Religion is toxic when we are hard on everybody else and easy on ourselves. But true spirituality is being hard on ourselves and easy on everybody else because we just have this posture of humility, love, and grace. And so there, might, there are people all around us, which we, what do we have to do? We have to love them. We welcome them in. We, we don't create any distance at all. And I have to say, as the time is wrapping up, and this is a hard topic, and I went over a little bit, I have to say this, though. You know, Christianity has been very guilty of joining into that locker room bully talk that leads to serious emotional harm. For a long time, people who didn't fit into the box, who, who were divorced, who had all types of sexual desires that they didn't ask for, they're, they're put into a box and they're, they're cornered off and shamed like junior high kids would do in the locker room. And that is godless and vile. But, and even before I get to the but, I want to say that we have to repent of that. As a church, as people, we've done that ourselves. I mean, I know what I said when I grew up, was coming up. I know I did that stuff. And I know most of us did. The other end of it, the world puts this pressure on us even at like age 12, right? When, man, like at 12, you shouldn't know, you don't know anything. <laughs> you know what I mean? But there's this incredible pressure on us that, that um, you cannot live a good life unless you own your sexuality, unless you, you know what I mean, have a very fulfilled sexual life. All of life is not sex. In Matthew, when Jesus is saying the same thing, he's, the disciples say, if marriage is like this, a lifelong commitment between a man and a woman, and... Uh, you know what I mean? All that stuff they say. His disciples, Jesus' own followers are like, it's better just not to get married at all then. <laughs> that's their conclusion. You understand why they get to that, right? Because it's like, that's hard. But, but Jesus says, listen, he goes right to this. He goes right to there are some who are eunuchs, made some who've been made eunuchs. What he, what he goes to is he basically says immediately, he doesn't let them off the hook. He says, he says there are people who are celibate for the kingdom. There, there are people who are selling who are full on followers of Jesus. 
Does that mean that you never mess up? Does that mean that you have a spotless record? Does that mean that nobody can follow Jesus who've had a past? You already know the answer to that. Jesus is the God of second chances. Jesus is the one who welcomes you in, who loves you and receives you and accepts you. Jesus is the one who picks up the head of the woman who is caught in adultery in the act and the crowd brought this woman to her, to him, and they wanted to stone her. And what does, she, what does Jesus say to her? He says, you're forgiven. Now go and sin no more. And he'll continue to say that to you. He wants you to live for him. Listen, the last part of this chapter, we see that Jesus says, you will be repaid, but you will have to give up everything. And as we come to this table, I want to remind you tonight that following Jesus costs everything. When I was in Africa, we had disciples who came from Hindu and Muslim backgrounds. And some of our disciples, some of the people that we, we studied the Bible with, were kidnapped by their family. We had one who was killed. People we came to know and love. And they did this for Jesus. And what's happening is, is that there's this idea that if we teach that you have to follow Jesus and follow a certain ethic, you are harming people. And the reality is, is that you give up. Everyone gives up to follow Jesus. But what you get is so much more than you give up. Lord, please help my incredibly imperfect words tonight. And Lord, I pray, Father, that there would be something, God, that would stick to our souls, that would encourage us, that, that would move us on. Lord, we pray, I pray for this church, Lord, that we wouldn't be a just like Christianity light, like Bud Light, L-I-T-E, and just have no filler and, and just have no ethic and no morality. I pray, Father, that we would be a place of discipleship, that we would be a place, God, that calls things out as they are. And Lord, I pray, Father, that this would be a place where people are born again, where they're renewed and restored, Lord, where they're healed, where people who have lived a life that's in direct opposition to your path, Lord, would come back to come back home. The prodigal would come back home. Lord, you're just waiting for us to take that first step, and you'll take the other 99. Lord, I pray, Father, that we would be a place of healing. I pray we would not be a place of hate. I pray we would not be a place of, of distancing ourselves from anyone. You drank with sinners. You hung out with corrupt politicians and prostitutes. But you never denied what they were. That they were people in need of you and who needed to change. And I pray, Father, that we would follow your path. In Jesus' name.